Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Good song, Lead Me to the Cross. I like that. And that's a great, great song to lead into just about, just about any message because one of the questions that we ask when we're looking at a text is how does this point us to the cross, especially when we're in the Old Testament? If we believe the whole book is centered in one place, in one point in history, in one person, then somehow it points us to the cross. It's a great, it's a great, uh, great song. Um, so this is message number two, kind of. We didn't get to do the first week because of the weather, but I did that before. So this is really three in the series uh, in Ruth. We're still in Ruth chapter two. And when we were last here, of course, last week we were, last week we were examining the character of Ruth and Boaz. And we saw Ruth's humility. We saw her devotion to Naomi. We saw her dependence on her new God and how that had shaped her and primed her to be a receiver of grace. That's kind of how we, where we put her. We talked about how God wants to work grace in all our lives, but sometimes it's our own, our own attitude, our own heart, our own religion, even sometimes that, uh, and sin certainly that, that blocks God, that keeps God, that prevents him from doing a grace work in our lives. Uh, we saw Boaz, a man of faith, a man of obedience, a man of generosity, a man of Worth. If you remember, we treated that word very carefully. We saw that these were works of grace in the life of Boaz as well. And we understood that the purpose of those things, all those things, was in part to move him from being just a grace receiver, as we all are, to being a grace giver or grace conduit. So now we come to the second part of this chapter, if we were to divide, to divide this chapter into just two parts. Now, when I did this series uh, originally, chapter two was three parts. <laughs> so I'm gonna we're gonna cover a lot of ground tonight and try to get chapter two all in one night so we can kind of stay stay our, keep our calendar where it where it needs to be. Okay, so we're gonna cover a lot of ground and in this in this last next section we're gonna see Boaz kind of practicing uh, the things that God had forged into his character, practicing his his faith in some ways. Uh, more than that, though, we find in this next part an understanding of the why behind Roaz, uh, Ruth's, Roaz, <laughs> Ruth's, behind Ruth's actions and Boaz's. And uh, that's like when you made up a uh, a Rick and Robin hybrid and called him Rock. That's what I just did with Booth, <laughs> Ruth and Boaz. This is not going well tonight. <laughs> But another cool thing that's going to come out here in one verse, and I love these. You know, as we talked about this, these lines of sight from the Old Testament to Christ, there's just a really cool one that jumped out at me that we're going to see a, a little later. We're going to see a person satisfied in the provision that only God can really provide. Some fantastic stuff. But we're going to cover, we're going to read a lot of text. And then as you're taking notes or whatever you're doing, marking, you'll mark them as we go. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in chapter 8, and we're going to go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. Okay, and then we'll pray and then we'll get to work. I'm sorry, Ruth chapter two. Did I say chapter eight? There is no Ruth chapter eight. Go with Ruth chapter two. Woo. Hey, y'all, you remember the thing about the, the, he said, the pastor said next week, we're going to have a sermon uh, that's out of Mark. I think it was Mark 16 or 17 or whatever it was. And the next week he said, now this week's sermon topic is lying. If you read Mark 17 or whatever it was he said, would you, would you raise your hand? A whole bunch of people raised their hand. He said, well, there is no Mark 17. So this is about all of you. Man, am I ever off topic. Let's get, let's get to reading. Ruth chapter 2, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. 
Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Of, uh, has been fully told to me of how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. And the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I have, and then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose again to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her and also pull out from some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had and gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And then, here's that phrase again, and then Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. God, thank you, Father, for your word and all that it holds. We thank you, Lord, for the way that by your spirit you bring it alive and change our hearts and work grace in and through our lives. We thank you, Lord, that from wherever we are in your word, we see one thing clearly. And that's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see bits and pieces of the broad story, the grand story of the gospel, the good news. And we're thankful for that. So, Lord, as we open your word tonight, you guide us. Lord, help, help us to hear and to understand and to apply by your word, through your word, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've, rinsed, we've mentioned Ruth's impetuousness maybe or the at least the perception of it in asking for permission to glean the fields just behind the reapers we talked about that last time and she understood that doing so beginning to do this was completely uh the favor of the owner of whatever field she would find herself in okay but should we see that she took some initiative here now if we're talking about this in a gospel context we have to kind of we have to kind of set something straight here because if 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 grace is what it is, and you said this uh, several times this morning, if grace is what it is and we're dependent on that, we have to always keep in mind that the things that we do that are God stuff, we never do on our own. 
We don't get credit for those. God gets the credit for those, right? A person doesn't seek after Christ until their heart has been quickened to do so. Jesus told us that in John 6, 44. No man comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But in Ruth, we also see the truth, kind of the flip side of that, that we have to act upon. We have to, using these words a little loosely, we have to initiate on our end. In other words, put it this way, we have to make opportunity for the activation of God's grace in our lives by our faith and our obedience. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, God enables it, because if he didn't enable it, it wouldn't happen. But we have to do it. And Ruth was responsible for seeking favor. She was responsible for some work that had to be done. But all of that was dependent on the grace that she knew, the favor she knew, which she would be dependent on. We are responsible for our faith in that only we must respond to what he is doing in us. We have to respond initially to the work of him in our heart by repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And then we come to verse 8 and 9. And we see what we could call the first drop in a waterfall of grace into Ruth's life through Boaz. He allows her, go back and look at those verses, read through it later. He allows her the the choicest position in gleaning, in in the work in the field, a guarantee she couldn't have asked for. He adopts her into connection with his own female servants. This is a fellowship she hasn't had in a while. Uh, he appoints her protection in his young men, both to honor her and to protect her. He affords her a place of preference, even for when she's thirsty. This is grace upon grace. This is favor upon favor. Much like what Christ has done for us. Now, the truth is that if God never did another thing for you other than the cross... Other than calling you to salvation there. If he never did anything else for for you, that would be enough. And if it's not, there's a problem somewhere in your heart. That should be enough. Here's the thing, though. He keeps gracing and gracing and gracing. Ephesians 1.3. We're told that Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that begins a list of graces. Forgiveness, blessing, inheritance, salvation, wisdom, and on and on and on. Ruth had simply asked for the privilege of gleaning enough for her and Naomi, but she was given so much more in this situation, as are we in Christ. Praise God. Amen? Now, we're approaching... Now, this is where you're going to have to hang with me for a while, okay? We're going to have to do some unpacking here, because there's a very important distinction and a very important error that I think we have to avoid. And we're approaching what, I, what many think is kind of the most crucial theological point in the in the chapter and and they show us this this overarching is simple but all important reason for what Boaz and ultimately God is doing in Ruth's life and ultimately our lives okay and it begins with a question that Ruth asks of Boaz in verse 10 then she fell on her face to the ground and she said to him why have I found favor in your eyes Why have I found favor in your eyes? Now, for the believer, this is a question that we ask continually. And the more you get it, the more you ask it. We ask it in the beginning of our faith because many of us, when we're in that place where God's dealing with our sin and we don't know grace yet, we think we've done too much, we've gone too far, we've waited too long for the grace of God to reach us and to forgive us and to cleanse us, right? We, we ask those of us that, are, that belong to him, we ask in the moments when we sin, when we mess up and we are in need of repentance and forgiveness again, because, and we, we ask it because we're even more and more tender to God's, God's corrective grace. 
over time and we're more appreciative of it. Does that make sense? We ask it over and over and over because the more we understand God's grace and his wrath and his love and his justice and his holiness and his work, the more we understand a core truth about grace. Grace is not only not getting what you deserve. And for all of us, that would be death and hell. That's what we deserve. And if you don't get that, we can't even have a gospel conversation if you don't get that yet. That I'm lost, I'm a sinner, and I'm in trouble. Right? But that's not only what grace is about. It's also about, maybe even more so, about getting what you don't deserve. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Redemption. Grace. Life. Freedom. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Grace upon grace. Gift upon gift. And the more you understand it, the more you appreciate it. And then the more you wonder how it could ever have been offered to a wretch like you or me. That's why we ask that question. Why have I, oh God, why have I found favor in your eyes? The key to understanding the answer, the true answer, I think, the gospel answer, is humility. And humility... It's kind of a, I don't call it a catch-22 or not, but humility, really true humility, is rooted in an understanding of, however rudimentary or profound, depending on where you are in the journey, humility is rooted in an understanding of God's grace in the first part, in the first place. Remember that phrase, Ruth was Ruth the Moabite. It said it right there in our, in our text tonight, Ruth the Moabite. She should have never gotten in. To the family of God. She should have never gotten in. Neither should we. She was a non-Israelite. So she expects no special treatment. Neither should we. She knew that her very existence. Would depend on the favor and grace of another. And she presumed nothing to the contrary of that. Neither should we. How do you know if any semblance of true humility abides in you? This is not a comprehensive litmus test, but this is one idea. Honestly, and that's really the kicker, isn't it? Because we're not honest with ourselves most of the time when we're evaluating ourselves. We're not. Don't act all spiritual like you don't know what I'm talking about. We're not honest with ourselves when we're evaluating ourselves most of the time. But honestly, ask yourself how you feel when other people are generous to you. Um, as I studied through this book a couple of years ago, I, I was given a book by a friend. It's by John Piper, and it's called Sweet and Bitter Providence. And it's all about Ruth. And there's a, a quote here I want to I read from Piper about this, because this, I thought this was very well stated. So Piper says, quote, Proud people don't feel amazed at being treated well. They don't feel deep gratefulness, but humble people do. In fact, they are made even more humble by being treated graciously. They are so amazed that grace came to them in their unworthiness that they feel even more lowly, but they receive the gift. Joy increases, not self-importance. Grace was not intended to replace lowliness with pride. It's intended to replace sorrow with joy. Why me? 
Why have I found favor in your eyes, O God? How I struggle with that sometimes. And I'm grateful that in our text tonight, we see what I think is a clear answer from God through Boaz. In a nutshell, the only reason you found favor in him is him. I'm going to say that again because we're going to do some rather uncomfortable unpacking in just a moment. The reason you have found favor with him, if in fact you have found favor with him, is him. It is his grace. It is his own favor to bestow or to withhold and neither from any merit of your own. That's why they call it grace, not a wage. He has chosen to give it to you if you have it. Look at verses 11 and 12. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Stop right there. Now, this is the error that we have to be careful to avoid. We, it was in Sunday school this morning. It was in the message this morning. It's, it's, it's the theme that has to be there because it's very, very tricky. At first glance, we might make the mistaken position that this is there's a works relationship going on here. And on the surface, and, and that's, that's all it is. She's been good to Naomi, so God's been good to her. Right? That seems, seems simple. Makes logical sense, right? We do good things, so good things happen to us. We put grace points in the account and we can draw those grace points out when we need them. It's easy to, especially here, it's easy to slip into a performance-based theology. You know why that's so tempting? Because it's easy. Performance is easy. Behavior is easy to deal with, to measure. Grace is messy and hard. Behavior is easy to measure and to manipulate and to maintain for a little while and even to mimic. It's easy to compare my list of good deeds with my neighbors. It's easy to think maybe even that that old karma thing that, you know, what goes around comes around and I do good stuff and good stuff happens. It's easy to think maybe there's some merit to that. You do good, you get good. There's a couple of practical problems that I have with that. First, frankly, it turns God into a kind of a candy dispenser. A gumball machine. Put a quarter in, you get candy out, right? Put my good stuff in, get blessing out. I will never forget hearing a preacher from the pulpit, not a different church, or I probably wouldn't be here, you'll see why in a minute. And we didn't we weren't there very long, actually, were we? <laughs> I will never forget hearing a preacher say from the pulpit. That he didn't understand why God was blessing a pastor down the road with growth, with ministry growth, who'd only been saved a few years and was a real, well, hellraiser before he got saved. And he'd only been saved a little while. When I, I've been a good Christian my, but, but since I was a kid and I, I went into the ministry young early. Why is he blessing that guy? What? I heard that. Listen, God can and does bless obedience 
when in his sovereign will he chooses to do so. But that cannot be the basis of your life and faith and practice. And the reason for that is, is the second practical problem that I have with it. Where does that leave us with where Naomi was in chapter 1? Where does that leave us when you've got lots and lots of grace points in the bank because you've been to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and every special service, when you've written all your tithe checks and you've given a whole lot in offerings, that's extra grace points, right? When you've helped other people and you've given to missions and you've taught your Sunday school class and you've sang your special and you've preached your sermon. What about when you've got all those grace points stocked up in the bank and then catastrophe? The word from the doctor nobody wants to hear. The phone call nobody wants to get. The rejection from a loved one that nobody wants to endure. The moment your world falls apart and all you're left with is you and your faith and grace points just don't matter anymore. This can't be what this means, that blessing is simply the result of a formula. I put good in, God puts good out. Now notice the subtleties of verse 12. Maybe it's not so subtle, it was subtle to me, but... (laughs) Subtlety is not my strong suit, right, Dwayne? <laughs> the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord. The key phrases there for me were the Lord repay and by the Lord. Boaz is explaining something here. He gets that he's just an instrument in the hands of his sovereign God. He gets that it's God who's shaped this moment. He gets that it's God who's repaying, repaying Ruth because of his favor. That was her question after all, right? Why have I found favor? The things, the circumstances stated in verse 11 are not largely the reason for the reward. They're the vehicle for it. They're the circumstances of it. The real reason for the reward, and we're going to unpack this a little more. You've got to hang with me. The real reason for the reward is the last part of verse 12. By the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The reward of God to Ruth has come not just because of what she's done, but rather what she has done, she has done because of who she sought refuge in by faith. That's God. Remember her faith declaration back in Ruth chapter one, when she told Naomi, I'm going with you and your people are going to be my people and your God will be my God. God used her love for Naomi to bring her to faith in him. In so doing, he brought her to understand somewhere along the way that he was her source of provision and he was her source of guidance and he was her source of care under by faith because she came out and Boaz is the vehicle by which she's learning that. Boaz, in a way, he kind of tells her something maybe she already knows. God is taking care of his own child who has trusted in him to do so. Apparently that didn't register. Let me say that again. This is God taking care of his own child who has simply trusted in him to do so. Now, that doesn't always look the way we want it to look. So why is this so important? Why is this distinction that it be God and Boaz rewarding Ruth? To me, it's this. If we think the latter, this is merely a human interaction here between between Ruth and Boaz. I'm not going to say Roaz again if I can help it. And we have too much evidence to the contrary that this is a divinely designed sequence of events that looks all the way forward to Christ and has eternal consequences, right? It also, it makes Ruth and Boaz the object rather than the instruments of the glory of the story. Does that make sense? And surely you understand, as Dwayne said this morning, God is always to be the object 
of any glory that's given. Put it this way. When a person claims God, when a person sets their hope in God for joy, for peace, for provision and everything else, then it's God's honor on the line. It's God's reputation. It's his words that's at stake, not the persons and not the people involved in the story, not the church that's involved in the story. It's God's glory to be had. Put it this way. Uh, the, God, the way that God works is to bless those who have placed their hope in his work for Christ their hope now let me start that again who have placed their hope in his work for them in christ and not their work for him that one registered a little bit didn't it i'm gonna say that again god the way god works is to bless those who have placed their hope in his work for them in christ and not in their work for him psalm 147 i believe says his his delight is not in the strength of a horse nor in the pleasure of the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in in those whose hope in his steadfast love. Where's your faith? Really? Psalm, what's the next one? I can't remember where the next Psalm 56, maybe be merciful to me. O God, be merciful to me for in you, in you, in you, my soul takes refuge. Not be merciful to me because I've been a good boy. Not be merciful to me because I'm a good Christian. Not be merciful to me because I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? Be merciful to me, Lord, for your own glory. For your glory. Through my faith and hope and trust and dependence in you alone. Piper again says, Therefore, we're hearing something very profound when we hear Boaz say to Ruth, In effect, Ruth, because you have come to take refuge under the wings of God, I pray he will vindicate his, the power and the grace of his wings and give you what you need. Ruth did not earn this favor. No more than we can earn the favor of God in grace and salvation or in any other matter. It was granted to her because she sought refuge in and placed her hope and faith squarely and solely in the God of Israel. And it will be granted to us as well when we place our hope and faith in Christ. Seeking refuge in him alone through placing our faith in him and his finished work at the cross. Now, for those of us who have made maybe even many wrong decisions, sinful choices and have reaped the consequences of them. For those that have come further down the sin path, right? This this will this will change Everything. This will change your behavior. I mean, it will. For those of us that were blessed maybe to grow up in a, in a more, dare we use the word, more Christian home, more stable, loving, well-rounded home, where morals and generosity and integrity, where those things were taught, on the outside, might not change a whole lot. In both cases, the motivation for godly living, the motivation for what we do, and the eternal or the spiritual benefits, they change entirely. What do you mean by that? Okay. I'll put it this way. A person can do all the wrong, all the right things for all the wrong reasons. To paraphrase Mark 8.36, what does it profit a man to do everything right he knows to do? To be a good religious person, to do good deeds, to love his family, to handle his finances well, to help others, to behave like a good Christian, and on and on and on. And lose his soul because he's trusted in those things to save him rather than Christ. 
Now, we have to say, and we've said many times, what we do does indeed matter. How we live matters. It does. But it's not to earn grace. It's not to earn favor. It matters because of grace. Do you get it? It matters because of grace. Now, that may seem like a very subtle difference in the language, but coming, let me put it this way, coming to grips with that, coming to grips with that can show a person, maybe even a churched person, that their faith has been in the wrong place. It's been in the wrong place themselves, their own checklists, their own self-righteousness, and therefore they've never truly come under Christ's blood and forgiveness in the first place because they haven't trusted in him. You can't do both. It can't be Jesus plus my church. It can't be Jesus plus my financial giving record. It cannot be that. It's Christ alone. And if you haven't trusted him for all, you haven't really trusted him at all. It's just that simple. Why would the stats say, and rightly so, I'm afraid, that most of the people who go to church every week in America are lost? Because they're trusting in the wrong things. And for a believer coming to grips with this could mean the difference between a life of duty. And that's not necessarily meant to be a negative word, but when it's just duty and there's no joy in it. What about, you know, life of just keeping rules? And drudgery and service and obligation and a life of, of, of joy and freedom and peace and liberty in the life and in the service that you're giving to God. Now, did you catch something there? Either way, either way you serve. Either way you're serving. If you're a believer and you've been in the church any length of time, you know that there are some things that a Christian should do. We should worship together regularly. We should, we should go to church. I won't, I won't be so legalist as to say if you're not there three times a week, you're a failure. I'm not going to say that. But we should be meeting together regularly. Right? We should give. We should help others. We should serve others in Jesus' name. We should support and be personally involved in missions and ministry on some level. We should serve our local church in some capacity. We should share our faith in word and deed. Right? But one can do these things, one can do all of those things from a dry sense of obligation. Maybe just because some old Pharisee told them they had to, and that's all they know. Or one can do these things because you've experienced the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God, and you want to serve Him with everything you've got in gratitude and joy, like we said from this morning. There was a verse that came from, from Paul. It was pretty cool. It's in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. He says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Now, that sounds like a boasting statement for the moment, right? Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That's important. Paul says, at first, he's saying, I worked harder than anybody in his new faith family that he was aware of. But he knew that it wasn't him. It was God working in him. To go back to John Piper again, because I read that book when I studied this book. Uh, to quote Piper again, Paul did not earn God's grace with his hard work, but grace made his hard work possible. You ever finish a long, a long, hard day's work and just feel a sense of satisfaction? Yeah? The guys really register with that. Now imagine the sense of satisfaction it must give God to look upon the finished work of His Son at the cross. 
Imagine how he must smile at glory in those who activate that work in their lives by trusting Jesus. Imagine how he must revel in those who serve him in and because of that grace. And it flows from that finished work grace. And he does. Grace, favor, is not earned. It is given freely. And it is offered and experienced only under one condition. That we seek refuge under the wings of the almighty God. By repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Everything else that we do. How we live. How we love. How we die. Follows that. And never the other way around. Now by way of icing on the cake. Remember the, uh, what was the one from verse 1? She happened on the field of Boaz from the beginning of chapter 2. Remember how awesome that was? There's, there's another moment here. One of those, to me, jumped out. I saw a similarity and it just jumped out at me. It's in verse 14. We have a moment like that. And a few years ago, actually, we were studying with, uh, at the time, was a small group of guys. We called it the Band of Brothers. And we met and we just studied through, through books of the Bible. And we had a good laugh at this. And we marveled at the clarity with which... God, to us, was pointing to another time specifically in Christ's time on earth. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said, come here, eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. Do you see it? The inclusion of one who was a cursed foreigner. The intimate provision of, of a man for one whom he's obviously interested in. He's in pursuit of her. The satisfaction of the one receiving grace. But don't miss the similarity here that caught me. Small but significant, I think, to another event that we're very familiar with. Imagine with me a night years and years and years and years and years later in Jerusalem. There's 13 men gathered in an upper room somewhere for supper. This is Passover, though. A sacred supper. And the leader of the group passes the bread and wine to the group. Explaining to them this is symbolic of his body and his blood which were going to be broken and sacrificed for their sake and for that of the world. Imagine the intrigue in the room when one of them dipped his bread in the same bowl as Jesus. Because the leader just said the one who was going to do that would be the one who would betray him. The leader is Jesus. The group is 12. And that night is commemorated every time we take the Lord's Supper. And I think that night is beautifully, beautifully foreshadowed here. Just a hint between Boaz and Ruth. The Redeemer and the one to be redeemed. The grace giver and the grace receiver. The blesser and the blessee. I just revel in that for a minute. That's awesome. Marvel in the way that God ties his word together over hundreds and hundreds of years. Wonder in the truth of God's redemptive story shown to us here ages before it really came to fruition. Glory in the grace that we see in that. And then demonstrate that grace when you live. Then the next few verses, we're going to try to move quickly. In the next few verses, let's read verses 15 to 18 real quickly. Um, 
We read them earlier. For time's sake, we'll just say this. In those couple of verses, we see Boaz, he's putting into practice now what he's intended to do in terms of Ruth's provision. She has a safe place to work, the fellowship of her co-workers, plentiful provision for her and for Naomi's needs. She still had to work, right? She still had to activate. She still had to make use of that provision. Her cost going forward was the labor to glean, to beat, to clean, and to carry home the barley. God provided it, but she had to make use of it, right? God's grace has been extended to you in Christ, but you, enabled, equipped, and empowered only by that grace, have to begin to do the work of living that faith. The prayer, the worship, the Bible study, the serving, the, the, the serving, right? Make sense? We're going we're gonna to say that about those, and we're going to go to verse 20. Verse 19, actually. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now here's where we're going to focus the remainder of our attention tonight. Notice Naomi's change in attitude here. It's drastic from chapter 1. You remember chapter 1, Naomi? who knew that God was sovereign, sovereign, but she just wasn't real happy about it? That, that's an understatement. She, she knew, though, that nothing, nothing comes to us outside of God's authority. Nothing. Not if he's sovereign. Nothing. What's the way that Matt says it? He says everything that, what is it, Dwayne? What's the way that Matt says that? Everything that comes to us is father-filtered. That's the word I was looking for. Father-filtered. She knew that everything she had endured had been with his okay. Now stop for a moment. Do we believe God is sovereign or not? I do. But that's not easy. That's, that's not easy. I mean, it's not easy to acknowledge that nothing, nothing happens without God's okay. That raises some really big questions. What about... Natural disasters that take thousands and thousands of lives. What about war? What about death? What about famine? None of those happens outside of God's authority? No. They do not. Now that can drive us to rebel against God for being mean. Or it can drive us to a deeper faith in Him. Because really, He's the only one who knows what's going on. He's the only one who knows what's going on and why. He sees what you do not see. He knows what you do not know. He understands what you cannot understand. He's God and you're not. Naomi chose, although in bitterness in chapter 1, to cling to God's sovereignty. She wasn't happy about it. She felt, dare we say in chapter 1, even harsh toward God for her circumstances. Remember she said, don't even call me Naomi. Call me Mara. That means bitter. But she never completely turned from God. She trusted that he was still God. And he was. And he is. So though her heart was trusting, her attitude stunk in chapter 1. It just did. And here in these verses, though, there's a a difference. She, She perks up. Blessing the man who had helped Ruth. What made the difference? What changed her perspective? What fixed her lousy attitude? In a word... Hope. Hope. Hope is a powerful thing. 
Hope can change your perspective. Hope can change lives. Hope is a powerful thing. Some of you know one of my favorite shows while it was on was, uh, was Survivor Man. And if you've ever watched any of those survival shows or been around people that have been through survival training courses and the like, it's, it's said, I hear it said often that uh, the most powerful tool a person has in a survival situation is hope. Because without the hope of rescue or survival, people shut down. People give up. People don't think straight. They make bad decisions that have catastrophic consequences. And they eventually, and sometimes very quickly, lead to their own demise, to their own death. Does that sound familiar to you? Of course it does. Just think about it for a second. When people have no hope, nothing to anchor their lives to, they make bad choices. They do stupid things. They get involved in destructive activities. Just take a look around our world, our town, our neighborhood, our church. Alcoholism, drugs, porn, affairs, families crumbling, crime, a plague, teens in our own town that are without families and homeless. Sin has consequences. It destroys lives. And sin not only takes root in the life that has no hope, it consumes it. And Naomi here immediately caught a glimpse of what was possible. Not necessarily what was real, but what was possible. Rescue from poverty. Redemption from disaster. Restoration of blessing and honor. And even family. Naomi hoped. Fortunately, because we know from chapter 1, her hope was in the right place. It was circumstantially centered in the person of Boaz, but it was anchored in the sovereignty of God. It is critical. It is life and death critical that your hope is anchored in the sovereignty of God and centered in the person of Jesus Christ. Your life will fluctuate. Your choices will not always be smart, despite what you think of yourself. Your behavior and your emotions will vacillate wildly over your life. However, your hope should never waver. And because of that, your behavior, your choices, your life, your circumstances, sooner or later will be brought around to have hope in view again, if your hope is in the right place. And that should be only in Christ. Now, remember that the things of God can be imitated, but never really replicated. A life that mimics hope can seem altogether orderly and productive and happy and healthy, but that life will eventually end. And as Paul said, after that comes judgment. But the life of a believer that has its foundations, has as its foundations a Christ, has a, has a hope that outreaches death because when you place your faith when you place your hope in christ you don't only have hope for this life you have hope for the next we know that your life is not only secure in the sovereign hands of god for your circumstances but your eternity is as well in christ alone my hope is found 
He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest droughts and storm. What's the rest of that verse? What, what heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears are still, what strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ. In Christ alone, I stand. It's a powerful thing to know that your life and your eternity are safe. No matter what stupid things you may do. <laughs> that doesn't mean you're free to go do the stupid things on purpose. You cannot do that. But you should, you should strive to please and honor and live for the one who has saved you. But to know that when you mess up, and you will, your hope is in a redeemer to accomplish something, to redeem something, to correct something that you cannot. Now, Naomi knew the custom of redemption. She pointed to it even in that verse. And she knew that this held hope for her and Ruth. She knew this was good. She, she directed Ruth when Ruth explained even more detail about Boaz's actions. She uh, explained to her and she directed her to follow his instructions and to make the most of his provisions. And we wind up with an interesting little idea. It didn't change Ruth's day-to-day activities at this point. Not yet. I mean that it didn't change the fact that Ruth still had to work for the blessing that she was going to get for the week. She still had to get up. She still had to go out and glean, beat, and clean, and carry home the barley. Notice verse 23. After some really powerful, beautifully symbolic high points in this chapter, she kind of goes back to the everyday. She kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. What a seemingly uninteresting way to end the chapter. She stayed where she needed to. She lived with Naomi and she walked in this grace she was being given in the everyday moments. We may experience some really great God moments in our lives. We were speaking to a group of students here tonight that would be youth camp in the summer, the mission trips. For some of us, it's the mission trips. By God's grace, and as much as we'll let him, Sundays can be those to the degree that we worship Jesus and hear God's word and experience the power and the presence of God. But that's not where we live. We don't live in here. We don't live in, in the corporate worship. We don't live in the church. We don't live on the mountaintop. And you can't stay there. You have to walk back down into the everyday. That's where we live. That's why I think this is important. Ruth started taking the next steps, the next routine, forming habit, doing the mundane things in the grace of God, taking those next tiny little steps in God's plan for her life, which for the moment meant simply fulfilling her everyday tasks. Now, I still think she had to approach them differently because now she has hope. She has hope. Naomi has changed her song and that continues to breed hope and encouragement to Ruth. She still had to go about her day, but now she could go about her day with that hope settling Notice I didn't say settled. Settling in her heart. 
motivating her work, steadying her spirit. And maybe it was even showing in her expression. Does yours? Does your hope show? Does your hope in Christ, if we've, if we've placed our hope in Him, does your hope in Christ settled, settling, secure, that sure hope in Christ, does it make any difference in your everyday? If you have not truly, fully, solely, completely placed your hope in Christ tonight by turning from sin and self and all of that means that we've talked about tonight, and trusting in Christ and His finished work on the cross. If you've never really done that, you can do that tonight. Because that has to be settled first. Come see me. Come see Dwayne. And we can help you know how to settle it. Actually, I just did. You turn from sin and trust in Jesus. That's, that's the abridged version. <laughs> if you have, here's where I end. If you have hoped and faithed in Christ... Then tomorrow, let your hope show. And then through your everyday, through the little steps, hope as a verb, something we're going to do. Hope in Christ. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing that song that I mentioned a moment ago. The altar will be open. Dwayne is down here. I'll be down here. And we're going to sing. I want to sing the whole song. We're going to sing the whole song. And we're going to have a little worship. Declaring and singing the gospel again. And then you respond. And you let God do what he wants to. Lord thank you Father. For. Hope. Thank you for grace. Thank you Lord. That. I can, I can stop keeping my checklists. I can stop trying to earn favor because that is a hopeless endeavor. But Lord, by your grace, in your will, in your greater plan, Jesus came and gave his life on the cross for us and rose from the dead three days later so that in him alone we could have hope. God, there may be one here tonight that needs to find it. I pray you'd work in their heart. Lord, for many more of us in the room, we may need to revive it by simply reminding ourselves what you have done for us. As Dwayne said in his text, I think it was a Sunday a week ago, sometimes, Lord, when we're not hoping and not doing the everyday and we're not growing in the grace of Christ, sometimes we forgot what you've done for us. Take us back there. As Robin's saying, Lead us to the cross. And you do what you have already purposed to do in hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you